Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to learn about the 2014 movie written by Paul Webb and directed by Ava DuVernay, Selma. To help us separate fact from fiction in the movie, I'm honored to be joined today by the Martin Luther King Jr. Centennial Professor of History at Stanford University and the founding director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford, Dr. Claiborne Carson. The King Institute has a ton of great resources that dive into the life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But as you're listening to a podcast right now, the one key resource that I'll point you to is Dr. Carson's own podcast called The World House. That's where he and the director of the Liberation Curriculum at the King Institute, Dr. Mira Foster, talk about all things Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, now, before we get Dr. Carson on the line, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. The church bombing we see at the beginning of the movie actually happened a year before Dr. King arrived in Selma. Number two, the literacy test was a big part of the barrier to vote. Number three, Dr. King was not at the march we now know as Bloody Sunday because his wife, Coretta, was upset about a recording they received about his affairs. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Dr. Claiborne Carson about the historical accuracy of Selma. The movie opens with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. accepting a Nobel Peace Prize. So that gives us a timeline for when the movie is in 1964. After this, the movie sets up a little bit of backstory. As Dr. King explains it in the movie, there are four children, four little girls, who are killed in a bombing at a church in Alabama. That's just one recent example, at least in the timeline of the movie. But Dr. King goes on to explain that there have been thousands of racially motivated murders and not a single conviction because the people behind it were protected by white officials. And on the off chance they were charged, they were acquitted because all the juries were all white, because to be on a jury, you had to be able to vote. So that's how the movie explains the context around the events that we see. From a historical perspective, how well did the film do setting up the backgrounds of the events that led to Dr. King's arrival in Selma? I think that it's mostly accurate in, in the overall scope of it, some of the timing. Obviously, the church bombing that's referred to takes place in 1963, not 1964. So that's kind of a, a step backwards. But, you know, that's understandable. Movies are not uh, meant to be chronological necessarily. And I think it provides very graphic understanding of what the movement was up against because King's most important campaign had been in Birmingham. And uh, for most people, they saw that as a success, you know, that the Birmingham campaign leads directly to the introduction of civil rights legislation by John F. Kennedy. But then the fact that in September of that year, after the civil rights bill was introduced, this bombing takes place. It's almost like it's a revenge against the movement. You know, you might have 
thought that you gained an advantage by having these marches, many of which were focused on 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. That's where the children congregated before they went into the downtown area where they were fire-hosed and tear-gassed, and some of them were attacked by dogs. So the fact that after this, these bombers come and attack the church where these um, protests were mobilized was clearly retaliation for what had happened. And the fact that the Klan was basically saying, you may have gotten some concessions as the result of these protests, but we don't accept that. Was that directly relating to Dr. King's arrival in Selma then? Like he realized there's more work in this area to do? Not at all. That's what I'm saying. This all happens a year before that. You know, so the Selma campaign comes a year later. Okay. Okay. I think the movie mentions something about how there was a lot of work being done there by a group called uh, SNCC, S-N-C-C. And in the movie, they don't re- they're not really a big fan of uh, Dr. King arriving there. They feel like they've been doing this work on the voting issue, and now Dr. King's going to arrive, which means a lot of press and a lot of media, and they feel like they're he's almost encroaching on their territory. Was there already work being done there in Selma on the voting issue before Dr. King arrived? Yes. For example, um, the Boynton family were carrying on civil, civil rights work, voting rights work in particular, as far back as the 1940s. Uh, so long before there's a, a students arriving from, from SNCC to help this local movement, that happens around 1962. And that's one of the differences between the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and King. King is more, he comes in for a short time. He's basically a symbol for the larger uh, Southern movement. When he arrives, the press comes with him. So many of the local people want King to come. But SNCC, who feel like they've done the spade work, for example, in Albany, Georgia, where the same thing happens, where the two groups are, are together, they feel like they're the ones who have the pulse of the local community and that King comes in and wants to basically decide what the local movement will do. And so the movement begins to center around him. But in, in this case, I think you can see that he comes in for a good reason. Uh, you know, the, if the campaign had been succeeding, he wouldn't have been necessary, but they face a lot of brutality. And by the beginning of 1965, they're staging voting rights marches you know, uh, to uh, the county courthouse. And these are often met with violence. So it's in that context that King makes a decision that he should come to Selma and help this local movement. And I think for the most part, the SNCC workers accept the fact that that King is going to draw attention. There's some tension, but there's also some cooperation. Uh, So it's it's not necessarily that they're antagonistic. They just have a different way of doing it. You know, the SNCC workers, once they arrive, they're pattern is to stay in the community, whether that takes several years or not. You know, that that's the point is that you're you're there to carry out uh, not only voter registration campaigns, but after you get the vote to try to mobilize the community to actually exercise the vote. SNCC's objective is to bring black power. You know, that that phrase hasn't come into the lexicon yet, but but what they what their long term goal is to register enough voters in these deep south counties so that ultimately 
they will be able to gain political power and change the lives of black residents. You mentioned the march to the courthouse, and I wanted to ask you about that because the movie does show that as something that happens soon after uh, King arrives in Selma. We see a march to the courthouse, and there's a sheriff, uh, Sheriff Clark, I believe his name was, and he has some officers there on the steps of the courthouse ordering Dr. King and the marchers to disperse. It doesn't take very long for the sheriff to really start inciting violence. He pushes over an older man named uh, Cager Lee, and then his son-in-law, Jimmy Lee Jackson, starts fighting back. And then the sheriff is kind of wrestling with him, and we see Oprah's character, Annie Lee Cooper, hit the sheriff from the back of uh, the head, and that leads to the sheriff then turning on her, and his men start attacking her. And then the scene cuts to President Lyndon Johnson, and he sees a photo of Annie being pushed to the ground on the front page. How well did the movie do depicting that sort of violence at the courthouse with the the sheriff soon after King arrived in Selma? Well, the way you're describing it kind of conjoins a a number of different events. For example, Jimmy Lee Jackson, he's ultimately killed in Marion, Alabama, not in Selma. You know, that that whole incident takes place in a night march um, somewhat, not exactly Selma, but uh, in that general area. So I think that what it does is it combines events that had to do with the voting, voter registration movement, but you know, takes some liberties in terms of the timing of them. Sure. It's not kind of like what you were talking about earlier with the, the timeline of the bombing and such, it sounds like. Yes, yes. And, but it is the killing of Jimmy Lee Jackson, though, that leads some people to respond, some activists most of them in in SNCC, who say, okay, what we need to do is march to Montgomery and put this on the doorstep of George Wallace, uh, that that's the way you're going to get attention. So the idea of the uh, march to Montgomery, to some degree, that picks up steam because of the killing of of, uh, Jimmy Lee Jackson. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden, I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then, because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under Podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under Podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In.
the movie does show Jimmy Lee Jackson later on. And I, this initial one, I, it sounds like it might just, in Selma, it might be to kind of introduce us, the viewers, to him as a character. Because later on, we do see a nighttime march, and the police show up, and they disperse, and, and then Jimmy Lee Jackson and his wife and her father kind of sneak into a restaurant, and then the cops come in, walk right over, start beating Cager Lee. Jimmy tries to stop him, and one of the cops just pulls out the gun, shoots him point blank. I'm assuming, based on what you said before, that that sounds like that is how it happened. That's pretty much what happened. Uh, you know, I, I've heard various stories that it was his mother that he was trying to protect. But the main point of it is that he's killed by the state troopers, and that becomes the stimulus for the march. They were probably going to march at some point anyway, but that becomes a direct stimulus to get people to come to, uh, to Selma and begin this march to Montgomery. There's this one scene in the movie where we see Dr. King's wife, Mrs. Coretta King, and she meets with Malcolm X in Selma. And the movie implies that when I was watching it, I kind of got an idea that Malcolm and, and King didn't really see eye to eye on the way to move forward. Can you give a little more historical context on that? Because the movie doesn't really explain it very much. There's just this scene there, and then it just kind of implies that there's some differences. They just they don't see eye to eye on how to move forward. Well, certainly in the years before that, uh, Malcolm X becomes more and more prominent. He's critical of King, but even more, he's critical of the kind of politics that King represents, you know, the integrationist uh, politics. But one thing that happens in Selma is that he's invited by the students who are going to be participants in the march, and they want to hear him. And also, this is part of Malcolm's change, is that when He's at the March on Washington in 1963, but he's not a participant. You know, he's, he's in an organization, the Nation of Islam, that uh, forbids its members from participating in civil rights protests because that's not, their, you know, that's not their goal. They believe that divine intervention will bring about the liberation of black people. So Malcolm is breaking away from that. And after the Birmingham campaign, he recognizes that he needs to speak to what's going on in the black communities. It's not enough to, to stand on the sidelines. And so he he's wants to get more and more involved. And this is, comes particularly after he breaks with Elijah Muhammad and forms his own organization. So by the end of 1964, he's no longer part of the Nation of Islam. He's part of his new organization, that, you know, the Organization for African-American Unity. And he wants to forge ties, but he's, he feels closer to the young people in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. You know, they kind of have, share his, his sense of militancy. Uh, some of them meet with him after he leaves the Nation of Islam and travels in Africa. And after he comes back, he wants to forge ties with the Southern Civil Rights Movement. And, but he wants to forge ties with the more militant part of that movement and uh, not necessarily with King. So when Coretta comes, Martin is in jail by this time. And so the, one of the reasons why she comes is that he's, he's in jail. And so Malcolm is in town, and they both speak to the students. And she kind of gives the Martin message to the students. And on this occasion, they actually talk. And he makes it clear that he's not there to make Martin's life more difficult. At least that's what he tells her. 
and that uh, he really uh, feels that by going there, people will be more likely to actually accept Martin's message because it'll be seen against the context of Malcolm being the alternative. And uh, so if, if people uh, don't accept Martin's nonviolence, there's another alternatives in, in the works, and, and Malcolm represents that. So they have a discussion that is cordial. And, uh, of course, it's just a few weeks later that uh, Malcolm is assassinated. And so this possibility that Malcolm and Martin might have at some point gotten together if he had not been assassinated, you know, that's, that's always a possibility. There were a number of people trying to make that happen. But at least Malcolm and Coretta were able to talk. And actually, that, that led to a long-term tie between the Malcolm's family and, and uh, Martin's family. They got to know each other over time and based on on this initial interaction. And that fills in a lot of holes that I think the movie just glossed over. They they, they left a lot of that out, which, again, it's a movie. So <laughs> there is a scene in the movie where Dr. King and his organization, they're, they're trying to figure out the priority to focus on for the legislation that they're trying to, to back. As the movie describes it, a black person can only be registered to vote if an approved registered voter vouches for you. There's a mention of Lowndes County where there are no black voters, so no one can vouch for you to vote. Not only that, but if you do manage to get someone to vouch for you, you're expected to pay for all the time that you weren't registered to vote, and no one can afford that. It, as I was watching the movie, I got the implication that the marches really were trying to push the legislation for vouchers as almost the first step in a chain of, well, quite frankly, a lot of problems that all needed to be addressed, but it sounded like... King realized that they're not going to get everything all at once. So here's the first thing that we can focus on. Was that the legislation that they were trying to change, the vouchers? That was part of it. But I think the bigger part of the barrier to the vote was the literacy test, because that was something that could be administered by a registrar of the voters. And it was that person's judgment. And it could be a, an obscure question. And you have to interpret, say, a clause in the Alabama Constitution. I mean, how many people, I'm a resident of California, and I don't think I've ever read the California Constitution. So very few white people failed the literacy test, but a lot of black people failed it because you're trying to read to the satisfaction of a white person who doesn't want you to vote. You know, it was, it was a way of limiting the vote. And even if literacy was less evident among black residents, that was the point. That was the point of the educational system that in the Deep South, the educational system for black people was meant to prepare plantation workers. You know, many people, like Fannie Lou Hamer, for example, only get to the third grade, and then as soon as they're able to go and work, there's no need for any further schooling for them. So it was, you know, it was a system that was designed to keep people ignorant in order to control them. And so one of the results of this is that... Uh, the literacy test was outlawed, basically, because once you have federal registrars coming in, there's no longer that qualification. And, and also, when you think about it, having to go to the county courthouse to register to vote was itself a barrier. Most people who have grown up outside the South didn't realize that there was one place in the county for people to register to vote. It wasn't like going to the local shopping mall and finding registrars of voters you know, just sitting there 
eager to register you to vote. It was purposely made difficult to do, and that reduced the white vote. But the difference also was that once you were registered, then it became easier to register the next time. You were already on the registration rolls. So it was especially difficult for a new voter to be on the registration roll. And there were other sorts of intimidation, like publishing the names of people who had registered to vote and you know things like that. I think the movie does mention that briefly. They publish the names and address of people who are registered to vote. The way the movie implies it is that there, there's been a lot of violence because of that, you know, for the, the few black people who were able to vote had to fear for their lives because of racial violence there. You can really see this um, more evidently right next door to Selma in Lowndes County, which was by far a black majority county, but no black people. I'm pretty sure that none of the black residents in that county were registered to vote at the beginning of the of the 1960s. So you have a overwhelmingly black county where black people don't vote. And we can see the result of that, that when they did get the vote, <laughs> there, there was no longer a white, a white sheriff. And, you know, you know, I remember visiting there and, you know, going to the county courthouse. And, and it was very interesting to see this the change, you know, when I went there in the 1970s and you would see, you know, the, the black sheriff and the black county clerk and all of these things had changed pretty dramatically in Lowndes County. Heading back to the movie, the next major event that we see, there's a, there's a march and then, of course, another show of force from Governor Wallace. And we get the report of what happens in the movie through a reporter named Roy Reed. And he's relaying the information over the phone, presumably back to a newspaper somewhere. As Reed explains it to both us, the viewers, and back in the newspaper, there were 525 people who left Brown's Chapel and walked the six blocks to Pettus Bridge over the Alabama River. Now, on the other side of the bridge, they encountered troopers, posse men on horses, and some hundred or so white spectators, and the troopers advance on the marchers. The camera then cuts to Dr. Keene's house with some others, and it appears, according to the movie, they're watching this live on TV. Somebody mentions that there's some 70 million people watching this, and then the camera cuts back to the bridge, and it's just pure, it's violent. It's, it's hard to watch. There's, there's tear gas, and the troopers are swinging their nice sticks at the heads of the marchers. Again, yeah, it's hard to watch for so many different reasons, but how well do you think the movie did showing the events that today we know of as Bloody Sunday? Well, I think that's the highlight of the movie, and I think it was handled uh, quite well in terms of conveying the violence. Of course, there, the movie has to be fairly accurate because a lot of people have seen the actual news footage from the scene, so you get a sense of how violent that was. I think where the film is not as accurate is there's, there's a central problem in the film, and you've probably noticed it, and that is that this is a film that features King, but the historic event doesn't involve King. So you have to explain, well, if you have this march from Brown's Chapel, why isn't King there? This is the most, uh, one of the iconic events of the decade. And so why isn't he there? So I think that's where the film kind of makes it seem like he has to go back to Atlanta in order to patch things up with Coretta. And that's purely imaginary. I mean, that, you know, the reason why he has to go back is that it's a Sunday. And he makes the decision that he has to preach that Sunday. You know, then the question is, well, why didn't they delay the march? 
Well, you know, that's not just a decision that King can make. You know, the, the, the idea that this was going to be a, a long march, it was going to involve a lot of people. This was just the first stage of the march. So there, there was that sense, well, we've brought people here to Selma, and, uh, you know, they're not going to sit around in Selma. I've been there many times. There's not a lot to do. So, you know, if, you, if you've attracted people from all over the nation by this time, and certainly a large part of the civil rights activist community are congregated in, in Selma, and they're ready to go, why would King's absence make a difference to them? You know, let's, let's get started. Let's, let's do the march. And I think that's that tension that's um, between SNCC and, and King. You know, basically, both groups have people involved in the march. It's simply King is not there. But I think the simple explanation, you know, that he was going to preach that Sunday doesn't seem to have enough strength. So then you have this discussion between Hoover and, and Johnson about King's affairs. And it is true that in January, he receives this anonymous note that was sent in order to stop him from getting the Nobel Peace Prize. And this note comes with a recording to his house, supposedly shows that he shows him in a compromising situation with women. The idea there is that that's why he has to go back to Atlanta, as to because Coretta's disturbed by that. I knew Coretta for two decades. Uh, even if she had been disturbed by that, that wouldn't have, she would have wanted to go to Selma. You know, it wouldn't have had the effect of holding him in Atlanta uh, if he wanted to be there. But I think no one really expected that that was going to be the crucial march. And probably if it had been on a Saturday, probably King would have taken part or if it had been delayed. But there was a lot of pressing reasons why people wanted to uh, march. Uh, you know, you can't hold that back. And there was a lot of eagerness to get this march on on the way, especially since they knew that it was going to be opposed by Governor Wallace. And uh, why give Wallace even more time to prepare ways of placing obstacles in their way? Yeah, that's a good point there. There is something that you mentioned there that I wanted to ask you about, and that is with uh, President Johnson, because the movie shows... I I got kind of a mixed message there. I got kind of where um, LBJ wanted to help with King's position, but he also didn't really want King to march, almost like he didn't want to confront Wallace over it. We see in the movie that Johnson sees things on the front page of the newspaper. I mentioned earlier, you know, with with the, the violence against Annie there. And there's one point in the movie where King tells him that if we're on the front page of the paper every day, then you can't ignore us. So what sort of support did Dr. King get from the White House for the marches in Selma? Well, I think the story of both John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson is that they had to be pushed. And that's not that surprising. The Democratic Party, when you start the 1960s, it's a party based in the South where black people don't vote. That's the strength of the Democratic Party. The Republican Party is the Northern Party, party that has its base of support outside the South. So for the Democratic Party under Kennedy and Johnson, they knew that they couldn't get elected without the South. Now, that changes during the 60s. And, you know, we see the alignment that we see now where the Republican Party is the strong party in the South. 
And the Democrats are, are stronger outside the South. But that was definitely not the case during the 60s. So a Democratic president trying to win the White House has to walk that fine line of you might have sympathies because you you do need the Kennedy could not have been elected in 1960 without the black vote in the North. It was a very close election. But in 1964, Lyndon Johnson wins in a landslide. So for the first time, unlike Kennedy, he has the freedom to say, you know, I can do something big, but he wants to do it on social issues as opposed to racial issues. He wants to build his great society. He wants to pass legislation where he needs white support. And civil rights, he learns very quickly, is this divisive issue. You have a lot of resentment among whites outside the South as well as inside the South to doing very much on civil rights issues. So I think he would have preferred to play down to not make a this kind of dramatic march that was going to put pressure on him, just like John F. Kennedy would have preferred not to have a march on Washington in 1963. You know, they reluctantly accepted it, and ultimately, the Selma to Montgomery march becomes the crucial turning point for Johnson, and he makes that decision that, uh, you know, as he says, we shall overcome, and introduces the Voting Rights Act. And you can make the argument he wanted to be pushed, but maybe not so quickly, because he, he understood. And he he says in, a, in a, one of his comments about it, you know, that this will cause the Democratic Party, the South, for the next generation. And uh, we're, we're talking about two generations later, he was exactly right, you know, that the Democratic Party hasn't carried the Deep South in any election since then, or since his landslide in 1964, in every single election, the majority of white voters have voted Republican. And so he went from being the Democratic Party being the majority party uh, to actually among whites being minority party. And the only thing that really makes it possible for Democrats to win elections is the black vote. So that, that ultimately was his calculation that Yes, you're going to lose some, a lot of Southern white votes especially, but you're also going to gain the loyalty of black voters. So now some 90% of black voters vote Democratic. And without that, Democratic candidates would not have very much of a chance of winning election. That helps give a lot more context, I think, of LBJ's position on that and, and why he had that position. Yeah, yeah. You know, it doesn't get too much into that. And, you know, one thing that I felt um, about the film, I was actually at the time uh, writing a script for a Birmingham film, which never got made. And one of the reasons why it didn't is that, you know, the Selma movie got greenlighted before, and there was a sense that, oh, you can't have two civil rights movies out there at the same time. So they kind of pulled the plug on, on the Birmingham project. And the Birmingham project would have been a lot more expensive to do and probably would have been even more difficult than the Selma film to do without the support of the King family. Because as you probably realize, at the end, the speech that is delivered is not the one that King actually delivers, but the one Anna Gervinay, um, she has to write his his lines. And I pitied her the the, the task of 
you know, can you write lines for Martin Luther King better than he would write for himself? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a tall task right there. Yeah. I do want to ask you about, you mentioned earlier, the the march from Selma to Montgomery, and that's kind of the big march at the end of the film. And according to the movie, a big reason why it happens is because Judge Frank Johnson overturns Wallace's mandate against the march from Selma to Montgomery. And so that's able to happen. And in the movie itself, we don't see any opposition from the police, but we do see things like uh, King and others marching arm in arm. They're singing. There's even some archival footage that I'm assuming is going to be from the actual march itself. The movie doesn't explicitly say that, but the way it's cut together, it kind of gives you the idea that that's there. Um, But, you know, it's not all happy. We see some spectators yelling uh, at the marchers. They're waving Confederate flags as the marchers go by. How well do you think the movie did showing the March from Selma to Montgomery, of course, ending with that speech in Montgomery in front of a huge crowd, plenty of reporters there at the very end of the film. You know, I'm sure that part of what is going on here is that the film was made on a shoestring budget by Hollywood standards to have large numbers of people marching. Now, there's a number of events that go on during the march, but in the end, it's days of walking along a highway. I mean, one of the things that happens is they pass by Lowndes County. And uh, that's where people from Lowndes County come down to the march and say, you know, look, uh, come to our county. We, we need your help. And that's how Oakley Carmichael ends up in Lowndes County, uh, where they have the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, which becomes better known as the Black Panther Party. And that's the, the group that uh, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization eventually gains power in Lowndes County. So that's that could be an interesting side story, but you know, it, I I can imagine she's probably already over budget and saying you know we can't can't have these side stories going on. And then of course there were a lot of threats, but there's also a lot of celebrities at the end who come in to the Selma March, and and that's another factor that you kind of see at the March on Washington, where for the first time these entertainment celebrities kind of make their preferences pretty clear and that's a trend that you see you know continue to, to today you know the the notion that that um, Hollywood and the entertainment industry in, in general is going to play a pro-civil rights role you know that's another thing that might have been part of it there there's actually some evenings where they have some entertainment along the way people like Joan Baez and you know others who become involved in the movement I know we've been talking a lot about the history of things, but as I was watching this movie, I couldn't help but connect a lot of things from the film to things that we've seen in the U.S. just this year. There's a lot of different connections there, but one in particular stood out to me, and it was Colonel Lingo said to Governor Wallace, if you want fear, you need dominance in Selma. And that eerily echoed President Trump's own words for state governors to dominate protesters earlier this year. So my last question is is kind of a two-parter. One, how relevant do you think the message of the movie is even today? And two, for someone listening to this now, what's something that they can do right now to help ensure that 55 years from now, we're not finding history repeating itself? Those are very good, good questions. And I think that there's a lot of relevance to what's going on right now. I think what we see is that 
the movement to make America a better country. I'm talking about the long sweep of history from the abolitionist struggles of the 19th century to the present. There's always the possibility when you mobilize a a movement to bring about massive social change, you're going to disrupt the society as it is. And the question is, what is the response to that disruption? Is it turning voters to support law and order? You know, which this is a phrase that really becomes current during the 1960s. George Wallace, for example, after this setback in Alabama, where he's kind of overwhelmed by the, the force of, the, of, of, of this protest, he can't stop it. It ultimately leads to the Voting Rights Act. But George Wallace runs in the primaries in 64 and does well in northern states. And by the end of the 1960s, he's a pretty serious candidate. One of the reasons why he's not any more uh, popular is that by that time, Richard Nixon has switched to the Southern strategy. You know, Nixon makes this calculated move by watching Wallace. And he says, but basically he's saying that the reason why Wallace is not more serious as a presidential candidate is that he's too out front with his racism. And Wallace recognizes that. And by the late 1960, he's, he's kind of moderated his racism to some degree. But Nixon does it first and does it better, more convincingly, that I'm simply for law and order. He learns that from Spiro Agnew. You know, Spiro Agnew is, you know, you could have a film about the clash between Spiro Agnew and H. Rap Brown in 1967. H. Rap Brown, by that time, you know, it's known as a black power speaker, comes to Cambridge, Maryland, gives a black power speech. After he leaves town, there's some rioting that goes on in Cambridge. And Spiro Agnew comes to there and says, you know, we need to crack down on these militant black leaders. And uh, he's going to put H. Rat Brown in jail and throw away the key. And he demands that other black leaders condemn him. So at that point, Spiro Agnew is a newly elected governor, unknown nationally. Within a year, he's vice president of the United States, maybe a little bit more than a year, a year and a half. He's He's vice president of the United States. And interestingly, he would have become president of the United States because by the time Nixon is thrown out of office, Spiro Agnew is himself thrown out because he was, at the same time, the law and order politician was taking bribes right in the vice presidential office and got caught. So if he had been able to control his greed a bit, while he was vice president, he would have become president. So that kind of shows the power of that. Uh, so when I think of today, you know, isn't that the question? You know, which massive protests can bring the country to the point of you have to pay attention to this issue? But once the nation pays attention to the issue, well, what are they going to decide to do? They can decide to say, let's make the the problem go away, or let's make the protests go away. And those are the two basic options that I think 
Americans always have. And we'll be seeing that in this year's election and elections to come, because I, I think that this is something ingrained in the racial politics of the United States, that if Black people push hard to correct the injustices of the past, there's always the danger that you're going to feed law and order politics and white fears and, and resentments. Uh, so the question is, how do you push for what you want and what you need and what you deserve, but at the same time not get the a more reactionary response? Because I, I think that it is very interesting that uh, even though we've had some you know, the Democratic Party has become somewhat liberal, more, but certainly more liberal than the Republican Party. But since the 60s, it's never really succeeded in gaining the majority of the white vote. You know, so that prediction of Johnson has held true, that what he did in, 19, in the mid-1960s cost the Democratic Party white support going into the 21st century. It's so easy to think of it as history that happened there, but it, I think you made some great points of how it is. It it's so relevant today as well, and I, I really appreciate your time to come on to chat about Selma. I know you've done a ton of great work over your career. Can you share a little bit of information of what you're working on now, or where someone listening can learn more about your work and some resources? Well, I'm one of your competitors out there in podcast land. <laughs> I do a podcast called The World House. And it comes from a King quote late in his life. And when he wrote, where do we go from here? And he talked about humanity inheriting this house where all these different people of different religions, different backgrounds, different cultures have to learn to live together. And I thought that was a good theme to take up because it kind of encapsulates King's life and the meaning of his life. So I, I do that. Um, we have a wonderful website, which I hope people will visit. I teach an online course on Martin Luther King. It's on the edX platform. So for, for free, you can get a course that students pay $70,000 a year to, at Stanford to, <laughs> to take. Uh, my, that's, my goal, that's my goal in life is to make a Stanford quality education free for all. And I think that with uh, modern technology like you're using right now, that's an achievable goal. I think that... Uh, we will get to the point where anyone can learn any essential thing they need to learn for free. And I think that is a vital path toward changing the way votes happen, you know, who people vote for and being able to see who they really are when you go vote. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, you know, the whole notion of democracy is based around the idea of an educated citizenry. And that was the whole point of setting up a public education system. But as we know, we have a public education system, but, you know, it falls short of providing equal education. You know, that one thing that the Brown decision didn't do is it desegregated education, but it didn't equalize education. I don't think any serious person would say that it doesn't matter whether you go to a predominantly black school or predominantly white school, you'll get the same quality education. It's just not true. It, it hasn't been ever. And we're a long way from that reality today. Thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot. Good to talk to you. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. 
I'd like to thank Dr. Claiborne Carson for his time and expertise in helping us separate fact from fiction in the movie Selma. If you want to learn even more about the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., there is perhaps no better place to start than by learning from the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford. I'll make sure to add a link to some of their fantastic and free resources, and that includes Dr. Carson's podcast called The World House Podcast. You can find links to those in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the church bombing we see at the beginning of the movie actually happened a year before Dr. King arrived in Selma. Number two, the literacy test was a big part of the barrier to vote. Number three, Dr. King was not at the march we now know as Bloody Sunday because his wife, Coretta, was upset about a recording they received about his affairs. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. The church bombing we see at the beginning of the movie actually happened a year before Dr. King arrived in Selma. That is true. As Dr. Carson explained, the bombing of the church that killed four girls took place in 1963, while the timeline of the movie is in 1964. So it really wasn't tied to the reason why Dr. King went to Selma like the movie seems to imply. That brings us to number two. The literacy test was a big part of the barrier to vote. That is also true. We learned in this episode that the literacy test was basically a test by the voting registrar that was completely up to their judgment. So one example Dr. Carson gave was that they might ask someone going to register to vote to explain a clause in the state constitution. Or there was the example we saw in the movie even, where they asked Oprah's character, Annie Lee Cooper, to name all 67 county judges in Alabama. So basically questions that no one would know the answer to. And yet that was used as a barrier for black voters. Well, as Dr. Carson pointed out, white voters almost never failed the literacy test. That means the lie is number three. Dr. King was not at the march we now know as Bloody Sunday because his wife, Coretta, was upset about a recording they received about his affairs. Dr. Carson explained the real reason why Dr. King was not at the march that Sunday was a lot more simple. He decided he was going back to Atlanta to preach. It was Sunday, after all, and Dr. King was a minister. And it's not like anyone had any idea that that day's march would become a major event that we now know as Bloody Sunday. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know that's not something most podcasts do, and that's exactly why I'm doing it. If there's one thing that's surprising to most people who are new to podcasting or have never created a podcast before, it's just how much time goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out more about how much time and money goes into creating a podcast like mine, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said, today's episode took a total of 32 hours to create and cost $19.21 in out-of-pocket expenses. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. In other words, the 32 hours does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about. It also doesn't include the time it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not a part of creating this one episode. 
For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, social media, the email newsletter, and all of those other little things outside of creating a single podcast episode that are still required to make an overall podcast. Similarly, on the expenses side, that $19.21 is just for things specifically for this one episode, which is mostly research material like buying the movie. It doesn't include all the podcast-related expenses that go beyond making a single episode. For example, the cost of the microphone that I'm talking into right now, the cables hooked up to the microphone, the audio interface, the computer, the software, the podcast and website hosting costs, and so on. All those things take time to set up and maintain and cost money that goes beyond the things associated with this one episode. But they're all things that are required because if I didn't do those things, there wouldn't be any episodes of Based on a True Story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it's not free to create. And that's why I'm so thankful for the wonderful people who are helping to support this show financially so we can keep it going. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get access to hours of exclusive content on the producer's feed. Right now, there are over 50 minisodes. They're covering different fictional movies. For example, we've covered how history is portrayed in movies like Pirates of the Caribbean, Jurassic Park, the entire Back to the Future franchise, and most recently, the 2001 film The Mummy Returns, and so much more. There are hours and hours of bonus content available immediately and plenty more planned and in the works just as a way of saying thank you for helping me to keep the lights on here at Based on a True Story. Once again, you can find out how to get access to that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. In the meantime, if you did enjoy today's episode, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.